This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Dr. Stephanie Rose Spaulding, Democratic nominee for Congress in Colorado's 5th. Thanks for joining us and congratulations on making it to the general election. Thank you, Jordan. And I just want to share as well, my pronouns are she, her, hers. Thank you so much for that. So Dr. Spaulding, you are running in a district that has been held by Republicans since its inception. It went to Trump by 24 points and no Democrat has broken 40% since 2006. What's different this year? (laughs) Well, this year, what's different is I am running And so there's a first time for everything, right? Typically, the candidates that we've had in the past have, for the most part, been very much similar in their walk, feel, look for constituents of the 5th Congressional District. I am the first African-American woman of any party to actually win the nomination. So that is different. On top of just what's going on around the country as well as throughout Colorado, when we think about the kinds of voters who are engaging electoral politics right now, younger people are moving into this district, more diversity is happening in this district. And so I'm really excited about the possibilities of what's to come this November. So as we've seen very recently with the Omarosa Trump conflict, Black women have a lot of difficulty in politics facing both misogyny and anti-Blackness. What has your experience been running as a Black woman in a deep red district? So there has definitely been some of that here in this race. However, I am, like most African-American women, not new to those kinds of challenges. I experienced those challenges while in graduate school, even in the workforce. And so I have learned how to maneuver in those kinds of spaces. But I will also say, surprisingly, that I've found support from individuals who would surprise some others, right? Because of the nature of what's just going on in our social climate, We've even had Republican women who have come on board for our campaign and just really been super supportive and understanding that now is the time for us to really show up and demonstrate who we are as a people, that we are not essentially tied to this racism and sexism, and this is not who we want to to demonstrate ourselves to be. So yes, there's been some of that on the surface We've managed to maneuver around it, and we're finding great success. So what are the policies you're running on? What are the issues that people in your district are concerned about? So like many across the country, I have 
a concern and we have a need for someone who understands education equity, someone who understands environmental justice and protection, someone who understands how to take care of our military personnel as well as someone who is an advocate for universal health care. So these are large umbrella items. But what's unique about the ways in which our district engages with these platform points are specific to the makeup of Colorado's 5th Congressional District. So when I talk about education equity, yes, it is around funding and making sure that there is funding for communities across the board, regardless of the zip codes that they reside in. But there's some uniqueness as well. Colorado's 5th Congressional District is made up of five counties and it has geographic diversity as well as population diversity. So there are urban, suburban, rural townships throughout our district. And when I'm talking about education equity and funding, we have some districts in our, some school districts in our congressional district because they are in parts of the rural parts of our counties where they are having to choose whether or not their students go to school five days a week versus four days a week. That's asinine in some cases for people to even imagine that what do you mean children are not going to school four days a week because they don't have the kind of funding that they need. Another point is when we think about infrastructure and broadband access, Many of us on a national level, we're arguing around net neutrality, which is a valid argument to be making and whether or not to protect net neutrality and the internet being a public utility. And so, yes, while many of us are having the conversation about the speed and the access to speed of our internet in some of our rural communities, especially our school districts, they are asking for access to the internet. So these are ways in which when we, we drum down those large umbrella topics, when we think about the environment, our issue is around water shortage on top of wildfires. And then when we do get rain, flooding and how it impacts our communities. So in terms of internet access, a proposal that's picking up steam is making the internet a right, making it a public good. Is that something you're interested in? Is that something you support? Absolutely. Again, for me, I think of the internet as the fifth utility in the same way that people and municipalities, townships have relationships to water, to electricity, to other different utilities. I think of the internet in the same way Again, looking at education, 70% of homework today requires some level of access to the internet. And we're thinking about whole communities not having internet. What does that mean in terms of the conversation of who gets left behind? Do you also consider healthcare to be a human right? Yes. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And again, looking at my district, when we have the conversation around universal health care, it's not just about coverage and insurance. Yes, having insurance and being able to pay for health care is important. And I'm an advocate for expanding Medicaid, Medicare to include everyone. But it also means access 
to providers. Parts of our district, I was in Guffey, which is in Park County of our district. And in their experience, they have better health care for their animals. So again, it's a rural community. They have large animals, horses and um, buffalo even. Um, so they have more veterinarians than they do doctors. That's a problem for me when we think about this conversation on universal health care. You can have insurance all day long, but if you have to drive three hours or wait three months to see a provider, something's wrong. And that doesn't, you know, it it's, doesn't provide universal health care. It provides universal insurance. So you are a justice Democrat. You were endorsed by that pack. In terms of jumpstarting our economy, something I found very interesting is a federal jobs guarantee, another progressive proposal that's very popular across the board. Could you tell me about this policy? What does it actually mean? Sure. In my coming to the conversation, when I think about job guarantee and the federal government playing a role, people that are able and desire to work should have the opportunity to work and the work should be life fulfilling and sustaining, right? That we are in the, in the same way that we want our country to move forward, we're responsible to making sure that people are employable, which means we're training them and opening the doors that are necessary for them to get employment. I am a professor of women's and ethnic studies, so I have great relationship in the academic world. And I know that higher education right now, they're producing people with degrees, but they don't have the jobs to match those degrees. And I think that that is in a lot of ways a failure of our inability to actually be forward thinking in the ways that degrees are earned, the kinds of what industries that are flourishing and how we structure those industries. Right now in, in Colorado Springs, there's a 1,200 person shortage in terms of healthcare and nursing specifically, right? So how is it that we have public institutions in the area that are not helping to expand and grow those nursing programs where it's needed so much? I think those are the kinds of relationships that we can have with industry, private and public, as well as public institutions, government from municipality all the way up to the federal government, where we can think forwardly and project how we need to be able to fill the jobs that are coming open and what's necessary in training people to be able to do that work. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates 
causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. Nearly 1 in 10 people in Colorado is an immigrant. Over 140,000 citizens in Colorado live with at least one family member who is undocumented, according to the American Immigration Council. Could you tell me about how you would work in Congress to protect the immigrant community, and especially the undocumented community that is under attack by the executive and by the immigration agencies that exist under the Department of Homeland Security. I am in such good relationship with wonderful people who are immigrants in our community. Their families have migration stories that are just heartbreaking, but extremely hopeful and encouraging and uplifting, right? And for me, I've worked really closely with undocumented community here in Colorado Springs. And it's really about making sure that we remember that we are a nation of dreamers and that we, when we begin to limit who's able to dream because of biases and systems of oppression, then that does not ring true in regards to who we are as a democratic republic. And it doesn't resonate with the values of our democracy. I know that for me, I'm an advocate for moving forward a clean dream act, making sure that our DACA students are cared for as well as their families, not being criminalized, that we are taking a look at our work visa programs and making sure that We don't have corporate entities that are exploiting labor and markets that drive migration and also making sure that our borders are not creating human rights outcries and crises. So I'm very much uh, in favor of transparent immigration reform and being able to make sure that the generations now and to come really are able to embrace the the dream that is so much at the core of our democracy. I appreciate that you use the word criminalize because this is really about the criminalization of migration itself. And I'd like to talk about that history of the criminalization of migration, which begins with the Chinese Exclusion Act. Prior to that piece of legislation, undocumented status was not criminalized, nor were detention or deportation considered constitutional or under federal jurisdiction, as neither practice is mentioned in the Constitution. Now, I'd like to read a quick quote from Justice Brewer's dissent in the Fong Yu Ting decision, Mm -hmm. which is what validated the Chinese Exclusion Act and solidified detention and deportation as constitutional according to the Supreme Court majority there. Quote, it involves first an arrest, 
a deprival of liberty, and second, a removal from home, from family, from business, from property. It needs no citation of authorities to support the proposition that deportation is punishment. Everyone knows that to be forcibly taken away from home and family and friends and business and property and sent across the ocean to a distant land is punishment, and oftentimes the most cruel and severe. Now this, which is from 1893, is way more progressive than what we see within the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. We see detention and deportation accepted as these natural parts of our immigration system, but that does not need to be the case, nor was it the case until the Chinese Exclusion Act. The point of detention and deportation, as we see to this day, has been to target people of color. These do not need to be practices that we implement in our immigration policy. That is a choice. Could I get your thoughts on this history and Justice Brewer's dissent on the constitutionality of deportation? Jordan, now you talk in my language, right? <laughs> so this is the work that I do. This is what I understand to be true in understanding American history, American culture, and having a PhD in American studies. What others don't necessarily get, laws around one naturalization and laws around deportation or even even immigration policy are so deeply rooted in systems that perpetuate racial oppression, right? So again, we go back to the Chinese Exclusionary Act. A lot of that had to do with it with the United States relationship as an international entity and what was going on economically with the expansion of wanting to, to get into the arena of imperialism. So for me, a lot of it has to do with how are we talking about structures of racism that impact the structures of economy that people are trying to either protect or to exclude folks from. And labor is always at the heart of when we find people you know, necessary to be a part of our country. And then when we find that they are no longer profitable to us. And so I see a conflation of all of this happening right now and it's in our faces. And I would love for people who are in Congress that actually know this history that can actually go back to the law and understand how and why we are creating legislative policies in this way so that we can undo what is an unnecessary burden, which is dehumanizing and inhumane. So I'm glad to hear you say all of that. I don't speak with many candidates who are familiar with this history. And now looking at immigration activism, a proposal that has gained a lot of traction with progressives is the proposal to abolish ICE which would end the placement of immigration immigration agencies under the Department of Homeland Security, which was not the case until 2003, when the department was actually created. It was previously under the Department of Justice. And for immigration activists, it would also end the ERO, which is uh, Extraction and Removal Operations, which is what we are talking about going back to the Chinese Exclusion Act. Is that something you would support? Yes. With a caveat, and I know that people are like, oh my God, where is she going with this? With a caveat of knowing what we're going to put as a replacement, right? So I'm not asking for another ICE or anything in that. Of course, I'm not asking for another ICE. What I'm calling for is 
when they redid the, the previous structure, we got ice in its place. I don't want to create a hole in which someone comes along and we get something worse than ice. What is the plan? I'm, I'm all for it. What is the plan that we make sure that the Department of Immigration and Human Services is not going to be worse than what we have right now, that it is going to be rooted in international human rights legislation, right? That we are respectful of internationally accepted law about human dignity and human beings, even even as we are, yes, securing our borders. And of course, I don't think that that is the baseline for why we even have ICE as it is. So how do we make sure that the entity that comes in its place, because we know the United States, there will be an entity that it is humanizing, that it is equitable across the board, that there isn't one system for a particular group of people as the current administration has called for, for because they want certain populations to be immigrating, that it's equitable across the board and that it does reflect the, the values of who we are as a democratic republic, right? That we are a nation of dreamers, that we are a nation of people who are so connected and invested in the growth of an expansion of our democracy, that it is a benefit to have those who are coming to our country and contributing very viably to who we are as a nation. So that that's my caveat to make sure that we don't give the keys over to some entity that is going to create something even worse. I think that's a great point. So the, the kind of agency you're discussing, an agency that comes with the decriminalization of migration and undocumented status, which would remove the necessity of detention and deportation in the first place, what would such an agency look like? And how would we actually go about foolproofing it from becoming the next ICE? Again, for me, I, I would go back to using as a basis what international law of human rights articulates and making sure that those, those areas are focused on. Because again, we are able to make the case around what's happening in terms of family separations and to argue against it based on both U.S. as well as international humanitarian rights. So in terms of international human rights, you also mentioned imperialism. Could you explain how the racist immigration system intersects with U.S. imperialism? What are the connections there? Oh, <laughs> so <laughs> you're asking for a history lesson. I should invite you to my class as I am teaching this semester. I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, uh, a lot of what we end up experiencing historically in terms of the ways in which the United States immigration law plays into imperialism is the expansion of the U.S. So for the 1700s, the United States was really much about nation building and, and colonialism, right? So colonialism taking over, occupying this land that is North America, or at least articulated as North America from indigenous populations and colonizing it. We got to a point 
in the 1800s, the closing out of the 1700s, the 1800s, where we began to expand into the Philippines, expand into colonizing other places that were outside of the continent of the United States. When we think about the relationship of labor and needing labor for the building of the railroads and things like that, those kinds of industry, we look to China, we look to Japan for bringing over that kind of labor once the abolition of slavery happened and there, I won't say there could not be any more free labor because if you read the 13th Amendment, we know that there was still free labor in relationship to that. But all of these things and the call from even Europeans in terms of the United States joining in on the white man's burden. Um, If you all don't know what that is, go read the poem by Rudyard Kipling, White Man's Burden, where the United States is specifically being called upon to begin expanding its economic and military influence into imperial places and developing colonies outside of the United States. And so with the racial overtones and undertones that were already present and in the fabric of who we were from the history of slavery, history of colonialism, we took those same those same principles and began to apply them to our relationship building in imperial settings like the Philippines, like um, the Caribbean and Puerto Rico and um, and other other places. So a lot of it is very much connected. And I don't think enough people take the time to piece it out and to really see what's underneath the surface. Absolutely. So there's a lot I'd like to cover there. But for starters, what does an anti-imperialist foreign policy vision look like? <laughs> um, it would absolutely have to be more collaborative, less exploitive um, in terms of the economies and the ways in which we do trade and economic development, even military engagement with other countries. Um, I talk to my students again, that when we think about why people are even migrating from other places, yes, they're There's turmoil and strife in a number of the countries, but we've also in our own ways played a part in how those countries are economically underdeveloped. I have traveled to Cameroon and um, throughout the Caribbean and even parts of Southern America. And when we think about the kinds of services and goods that come across our table, we're not always thinking about what it took in order for it to get here, right? Um, For example, when it's the middle of December and people are making banana nut bread, bananas do not grow in Colorado. (laughs) They don't grow in Colorado definitely in December. So how we got those bananas to make those banana nut bread impacts also the ways in which we are establishing trade agreements. So when we think of what's anti-imperialistic, are we as favorable to the economies that we are engaging, the nations that we are engaging, the communities that we are engaging 
that they are not forced to move out of their communities to to find and provide for their families, to find work and to provide for their families in a sustainable way. So you also mentioned the 13th Amendment and slave labor. Could you go into a little more detail about that, as well as how you would hope to reform our criminal justice system? Um, As most people understand, we do not have slavery in the United States. And they attribute that to the passing of the 13th Amendment. But what the 13th Amendment actually says is that slavery is abolished except, so there's an exclusionary clause in the, in the amendment itself, except under the conditions of being um, committed and found guilty and imprisoned. So that slave labor can occur under the construct of, of, you know, our justice system or injustice system, depending on the person that we ask. And so there, with that exclusionary clause, we get the manifestation of people who are doing labor as well as doing time, right? For the colloquial sense of those who are imprisoned, whether they are in, um, in federal prisons or state penitentiaries, that their labor no longer becomes their own and can be and is often much exploited. So there are companies and corporations that are benefiting, there are state institutions, there are federal institutions that are benefiting off of the labor being produced by inmates. For, for some people, the argument is, well, you broke the law. And so, of course, you should have to be able to give back to society what you are doing. Others have made the argument that while people are in prison, it has been a benefit for them to be able to, quote unquote, pass the time, pass the days by being able to make license plates or furniture or whatever the situation is. But again, for most, it is just another way to exploit human capital and human productivity. For me, I am much more an advocate of criminal justice reform. I am in favor of a number different of things that that go along with and coincide with criminal justice reform. One is I don't think just because a person is incarcerated that they should lose their right to vote. So that's a part of reformation that I would advocate for. I would also argue that the the wages should be commiserate with the labor that they are producing for state and federal entities um, that paying someone essentially four cents an hour on the work that they're doing is again ludicrous so making sure that there is an increase in the standard if there is going to be labor produced and additionally if people are going to be engaged in that labor while they are incarcerated then it should also be a pathway 
for them to be able to get jobs once they are released and they have paid their debt to society. There are institutions and corporations here in the state of Colorado that are benefiting off of incarcerated people's work. And then when they get out, they cannot even apply for a job with that company. So they were good enough to work for you while they were incarcerated. And now that they've paid their debt to society, they can't they can't work for you. They've learned all the skills and were able to do the things. I think that that's crazy. So I think this kind of gets down to fundamentally what our criminal justice system is for. We hear a lot of Democrats kind of talk about, you know, decriminalizing marijuana or ending what is slave labor. But we don't hear about kind of the failure of the prison system in its fundamental goals of punishment. That's why we have such high recidivism rates. That's why we see people become more, not less violent in prison. What do you fundamentally see as the role of prisons if we even need them? And how should the criminal justice system work to actually deal with violence, deal with these problems that many in society feel that people still should be incarcerated for? Right. And so, again, when we start talking about history of systems and institutions in the United States, whether it is in relationship to immigration policy, naturalization policy, this is another area where people think just because it's this way right now, it has always been. And that is not the case for centuries there. The the use of a, a criminal justice system was restorative practice was to rehabilitate that individual who had violated the sanctity of relationship of the public and, and their role in the public. And so now we have no rehabilitation that is really happening. To your point, it is very much punitive. It is, I need to punish you because you have done something wrong. And so, yes, we have high rates of recidivism when the fundamental practice is just punishment. For me, I think that we fare better for our society when we look at restorative practices where even if the harm cannot be completely repaired, right? In the sense that you cannot bring a person's life back that has been taken from them. There are restorative practices that have proved far better in terms of getting justice in families and in communities when we have moved in that direction of restorative justice. And it allows for the rehabilitation and the humanization of what is at the root of whatever whatever harm was caused by a burglary or violent um, violation. And again, I don't, I'm not advocating that, you know, we just completely do away with having a process to, to seek justice. I'm such an advocate for justice, but we have to ask ourselves, what is our genuine definition of justice? Because if we aren't able to articulate that, then we will continue to get what we have. So in terms of restorative justice, we've seen that discussed in a lot of circles in regards to sexual abuse and violence. 
Given that such abuse is so rampant in Washington, in Congress, and there's a good chance that you'll be working alongside known abusers in the House, how would you hope to bring restorative justice to survivors and victims of sexual abuse as a member of Congress? We will start by taking their experiences seriously and with truth. For the longest time, I think, um, even before the Me Too movement, the longest time is the forced silence of those who have been victimized, right? And are survivors and in pathways of surviving, that their stories have not been believed. Um, they have been silenced to not speak about them. But elevating and taking seriously what their stories are. Additionally, beginning a practice and a movement of justice that is centered around survivors, that survivors are able to articulate what it is that they need for their own mechanisms of healing, of surviving, of moving forward in their lives and allowing them very central roles in the process. Um, because you're right. And it's, it's not just Congress. It's any and everywhere. There's rampant just assault and victimizing across the board and industries. We colleagues of mine were just talking about it and how it's manifesting in academia. So I don't think that the, we have any industries or institutions where it's not present, but how do we move forward? How do we also retrain ourselves and our culture around um, gender identities, uh, masculinities, femininities, um, non-binary identities to make sure that people's humanity is honored? So what could you do as a member of Congress to support the LGBTQ community? Again, to advocate and to stand in alliance with LGBTQI communities to understand and to be able to help teach and have those conversations with other members of Congress. It is, in my estimation, it's such a benefit to have someone who does this work on an intellectual as well as a communal level already that knows the difference between being in an alliance and an accomplice and is willing to walk in those spaces with those who are the most vulnerable because of the systems that we have in place. Um, passing legislation that is, again, respectful of everyone's human dignity, moving forward legislation that articulates um, transgender community as a protected class, right? That expanding what hate crimes really are and by definition and how that is applied legally. I think these are a multitude of ways in which we can be accomplices in the work that has to be done. And lastly, what can folks do to get involved in your campaign and where can they find you online? You can find me online at www.stephanie, Rose, like the flower, R-O-S-E, for Congress, F-O-R-C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot com. So that's stephanierose4congress.com. You can find us on Twitter. Instagram, as well as Facebook at 
Stephanie for F-O-R-C-O. And to get involved with the campaign, of course, we are fundraising every day, all day. So please find us on our website, stephanieroseforcongress.com, where you can donate. You can also go to our website, same one, stephanieroseforcongress.com, and become a phone banker. You can phone bank from anywhere. And of course, if you are in Colorado listening to this, please come and canvas with us. We are always looking for people to help us knock doors and to have these conversations with people right at their homes. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I think your candidacy is very exciting. I know this uh, recording went a bit longer than expected, but it's because I really enjoy this conversation. Thank you. I'm so grateful to be just, again, meeting and having these conversations with other people and raising the dialogue. Absolutely. And we'd love to have you again once you are a member of Congress. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jordan. Yes, of course. And now to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Support us through our Patreon. Check out our website, millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.